Hello and welcome to this brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I am your co-host Dave Kale and I'm very excited about tonight and for those of you who are uh, joining us live or in the know, I'm sure you are too, because tonight we're doing one of our favorite kinds of episodes, a script discussion, and tonight we're discussing a big one, uh, both in topic and also apparently in length from what, I, uh, <laughs> from what I've heard, at least the first draft anyway. <laughs> um, we're talking about the Athrobeth, um, which, uh, as I just tweeted, is probably the answer to the hypothetical Jeopardy Tolkien edition question. This story from the history of Middle Earth is probably the least likely of all Tolkien's writings to appear in the Amazon Lord of the Rings. <laughs> For good reason. But not, but not in the Silmarillion Film Project. This is the one where we'll probably spend four episodes talking about. Oh man, this is the heart of season five. Like, it's the heart of season five. Like, all of season five, like, no pressure or anything, but all of season five is building towards this. And even, like, although the Dagor Bragalock itself might seem, you know, is like the big action piece at the end in which lots of dramatic things occur and people die and lots of things get destroyed and we get to set lots of things on fire, uh, like, that's just like denouement, right? That is the, that is the, um, uh, the mere kind of external fulfillment of uh, the stuff uh, here. This is, this is the is the real stuff. Uh, this uh, this is the heart of of um, of everything. So, I am so looking forward uh, to uh, to talking about this. Um, Right. Nick, I'm not trying to diss your giant battle. It's all good. I can't wait for the giant battle. Uh, but I'm just saying it's not the point of the season, right? The, uh, it is, um, uh, it is, it will be the resolution in action of many things, but it's, um, um, you know, this, uh, this conversation is really what this whole, you know, that, that, this is the season, the first season of, you know, of, uh, you know, of the, you know, the coming in of humans and, you know, the whole human elf thing that we've been dealing with in lots of different ways, lots of really interesting ways all season comes to its uh, both sort of philosophical as well as uh, emotional climax here uh, in this episode. Um, so pretty amazing stuff. Um, and this um, whole episode is going to be a general... Um, uh, sort of advertisement, right? If you've never read the Atherbeth, um, you really have to. I mean, I think it is probably it is probably my number one recommendation. Like, it is probably the best piece of Tolkien's writing that most Tolkien fans haven't read. Basically, I mean, it's just it's because it's uh, you know obscurely located in Morgoth's Ring, volume 10 of the History of Middle-earth, and most people who attempt to read the History of Middle-earth give up long before they reach volume 10 if, they, if they're not going to make it. So, um, uh, it's uh, the Athrobeth is just amazing. I mean, it's, it's one of the most powerful things that Tolkien ever wrote. Um, it's one of his later, uh, you know, writings. He wrote this in the 50s. Um, but it's it's uh, it's incredible stuff. So yeah, definitely. If you get nothing else from our discussion tonight, it is go read the Atherbeth, um, the Atherbeth of Finrod and Andreth, which means that the debate is there. There, it's the the debate between Finrod and Andreth, um, and uh, it's uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, yeah, yeah. Ilana says it was a revelation to me on Tolkien's writing and really, really helped me understand the Elvish worldview. 
Yes. I mean, this is what you see in Morgoth's Ring. Um, Morgoth's Ring is – I just discussed Morgoth's Ring for like eight months or nine months or something and the Mythgard Academy this past year. And um, uh, basically what you see in Morgoth's Ring um, first and foremost is him – Tolkien, that is – returning to the Silmarillion stuff after the Lord of the Rings and trying to figure out, like, the Silmarillion material was not... He didn't do, like, world-building of it. He was doing mythology. He was telling mythological tales and things when he was doing that stuff originally. And then that grew into plot summaries and uh, annals entries and a kind of overview of history. Um... But a lot of the like the nitty gritty details hadn't been worked out, and when he decided, when he wrote the Lord of the Rings, and then and the whole world of Middle Earth and its history became much more fully realized, he decided like I've got to, I need to sort this. Like there's a lot of questions that were left in the Silmarillion that he needed to find answers to. Um, so Elana, like Tolkien himself, was coming to understand the Elvish worldview. You know what it meant to be an elf, what it meant to be humans, what it meant for the two of them to interact with each other, you know, what that meant on a personal level, on an emotional level. What I mean, he finally did stuff that he had not really done before. Like, how do elves think? How do they look at the world? You know, so issues that underlie the Andreth story, things like, what does it mean for elves to get married? Like, what is that even about? Marriage among elves, sex and uh, childbearing and things among elves. Like, how does that work? Um, how is that different from humans? Um, and all of these things he really began to think through and sort out. And um, uh, and so this story, um, the story of Andreth, the human woman, uh, who, of course, has been, you know, one of the central characters of season f- of our season five. Um, and Ignor, brother of uh, uh, brother of Finrod is just one of these moments when he really um, works works this stuff out. But um, uh, anyway, um, so yeah. Uh, anyway, so as I say, public service announcement, read the Athrobeth uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, 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 Morgoth's Ring. But um, uh, speaking of announcements, <laughs> let's do quick, a couple quick announcements. Regional moots uh, coming up are fully hybrid regional moots. I like the astral attendees, Marie. That's good. So you can attend corporally or you can attend astrally. I'm not sure if you really are going to attend in your astral body or not, but you can certainly attend uh, digitally online. New England moot is happening on September 25th and middle moot is happening on October 9th. Corporeal attendees for New England moot will want to come to Durham, New Hampshire, as that's where uh, that's where the the Hroa of the folks who are going to be attending in person will be on that day. Um, as likewise in Waterloo, Iowa, for Middle Moot on October 9th. Um, but again, uh, people can attend either way. Um, uh, uh, for either one of those. Registrations are open, so go to signumuniversity.org slash events, and you can find uh, the registration for uh, for both of those two. Um, also, just to remind folks about Signum Clubs uh, and Signum Path as we get going here into the fall. Um, and Signum Clubs, I would just mention in particular, we've been uh, we've been working with school groups. So like just this week, we've been uh, talking. There's a, a private school here in New Hampshire um, that we have partnered with where we're providing language classes uh, for them. We're uh, offering Spanish classes uh, through um, through their school, um, and it's 
it's a really really fun opportunity. We love to connect with um, schools and, uh, and 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 other folks. In particular, very interested to connect with more homeschoolers. We've got a bunch of homeschoolers uh, who are already in our clubs, actually. And I think it would we we would love to. You know, I know how difficult it can be for homeschoolers to find good language teaching options, options, language learning options for kids, especially. And we have a lot of them. We have. Uh, 13, I think, languages that we're offering right now. So it's a lot. Um, we have a lot of really fun options. So um, I um, um, I hope that um, uh, folks can, will will take advantage of this. We'd love to work with people. So if you anybody who um, you know has homeschool kids or is part of a homeschool co-op that might want to uh, you know talk with us to see about maybe setting up some uh, you know courses for your local homeschoolers and stuff and languages, we would love to uh, talk about that. Um, and Signum Path, our professional development program, um, which is ongoing, and you can uh, build up your skills, your uh, really crucial foundational skills in writing and communications and uh, people skills and all of the uh, the things which really will help you to move forward in your career, whatever your career is. Um, the Signum Path program is a really great way to boost that uh, and really give yourself a leg up. Or uh, if you are working in a uh, working in a company. We can come in and uh, work with an entire team to help uh, whole teams get better at these things and uh, and to be working more effectively together. So uh, definitely uh, to any of these things, uh, you can reach out to us at info at signumuniversity.org or sorry, info at signumu.org. Uh, and um, uh, we will uh, we would be delighted to talk to folks more about this. That's what's coming up. So. Episode 11, Conversations of Hope and High Hope. Um, uh, Ethrabith and Amdir Aestel. So there we go. Um, now, so the framework, Marie, thank you for always reminding me as I, I always lose track of this, where we are in time. Nine years have passed since the previous, ep- since the previous episode, which was the, the, the wedding episode. Right? Um, and... Uh, uh, yeah, I was. I I couldn't remember the time. Fr- I'm glad you reminded me of the time frame. I was. Um, um, we got an, we get another one of those kind of wonderful moments. Um, I love the moment when Fingolfin uh, comes walking into Hador's throne room, and I was like, Hador, can we? Well, crap, you got old. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like and he has that moment which the elves have all too often, right? Like, oh, yeah. Kind of maybe should have done this a decade ago, I guess. In retrospect, um, yeah, yeah, that's um, uh, that was a that was that, that was a fun moment. Um, but of course, we we have the two primary plots um, this time. Really, just just an A plot and a B plot. Um, Fingolfin traveling aco- across Beleriand, recruiting elves and men for his big push against Angband, um, and we talked about. Fingolfin's vision uh, when we discussed the previous episode and his his plan and purpose, um, and then of course the B plot is Finrod and Athra and Andreth having their debate, having their discussion. Um, now, before we get into um, the details of these two plots, um, I want to first kind of step back and look at the two of them together. Um, because <clears throat> this is, um, um, I thought, I thought that this 
went very interestingly together. Um, but it's a really important pairing, right? And in some ways, a sort of unlikely pairing, at least unlikely appearing pairing. As on the one hand, you've got the High King of the Noldor going around and he's doing like big picture politics, right? Um, you know, we get to visit in with, you know, not with Thingol himself, um, but we, um, you know, we hear sort of about Thingol in several directions, and then we get, you know, several of the other of the centers of the uh, of the of the Noldor, and of course of the humans as well. Um, so we got all this like big picture, exciting stuff going on, and then like meanwhile, back to the ontological conversation that Finrod and Andreth are having, right? Um, and it would be easy on the one hand for. Um, uh, for this episode to like seem weird in that way, right? To go back and forth from like these big, huge, obviously momentous things uh, to um, the, you know, this personal and also pretty abstract, right? Conversation um, often uh, between Finrod and Andreth. Um, and um, in part, the thing that I'm talking about here is a natural danger or challenge of doing, of integrating the Athrobeth into this kind of a dramatic context, right? Um, as it's, I mean, it is wonderfully written and it is one of my favorite things Tolkien ever wrote, but it's not exactly dramatic, right? I mean, it's, it's not exactly written for the stage, you know? Um, and so there's definitely a challenge there. And then to be taking, first just addressing that challenge itself, like how do you make that um, engaging, right? You know, how do you continue pushing that forward? Um, you know, and not just like, let's do, do an episode in which not only two people just talk to each other the whole time, but they talk to each other about like what they believe the destinies of their races to be, you know, and, and stuff like that's um, like, let's talk about death in the abstract and what it means. And, and, you know, I, it's, it's challenging. Right? I mean, it's, it's definitely challenging by itself. Um, but then the kind of double challenge of how do we make this not seem a weird, right. To be going back and forth between that and the a plot and be like a non sequitur, right. Like, meanwhile, Finron and Andrath are still talking about um, how they understand death and what that means, right? Um, so, you know, so, Brian, I'd, just, I'd be interested to hear you kind of talk a little bit about, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I, I could tell that you were thinking about all of those things, you know, uh, as you were going through this. Tell me a little bit about sort of your process of kind of wrestling with those things as you, uh, as you were thinking about this script. Well, to be perfectly honest, it all kind of, just hit me as I was trying to get things on paper mm-hmm. uh, because you know I, I I basically just just came back to this whole project right. like a month ago. <laughs> um, and so I didn't have a lot of the the I had no threads to, to pull on leading into this episode from what you guys had worked on previously uh, because it's been two years since, since the last time I was active so um I just the 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 early stages of drafting were very like I was given an outline and the outline was very clear on what each individual scene like sort of the setting of each scene mm-hmm. and a little mm-hmm. bit about 
maybe what was going on in the scenes, but um, once I, I just tried to dash everything down on paper as quickly as possible so that I had some, a framework to start from, essentially. Right. Um, and as I was going through each individual scene, I kind of started to realize, okay, so there's actually significant parallels between um, what's motivating all of the characters in the different parts. And that's really where things started to coalesce was like understanding the motivations of each individual character. And it wasn't, it took a long time. Like I had gotten right. 75% of it on paper before I was starting to realize what, you know, Fingolfin's whole, his, I knew he was working from the vision um, that Olorin had given him. But after that, like, I kind of like, we, we went through a lot of versions of explanations because people, I, I had characters asking Fingolfin questions about, like, what are you doing here? And like, what's, what's, what's the hurry? What's all the, the hubbub? And he didn't, I, he didn't have any answers because I didn't have any answers. To that <laughs> but he told me I should probably do something and now I'm here. Uh, and so as I started to engage with the Atrabeth in particular, that's really when I started to notice the parallels between, you know, how Fingolfin was thinking and how um, Fingrod was thinking. And actually, that was kind of the, the crisis moment in the episode is where they come together and have sort of an argument about yeah. whether or not this is the right thing to do. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the conflict of the whole episode. And so the, the previous, you know, 50 to 60% of the episode is, is sort of laying out what those, the conflict actually is between them, like grounding the motivations of those two characters. And then when they have that, you know, dinner scene at Ladros, um, that's where it comes out. And it's, it's really like the, the core conflict of the episode. Uh, and I couldn't have gotten there if I hadn't just done it that way, where I'm like, okay, I already have the Atherbeth, I know what that is. Let me try to just put the, the action down first. Um, which is not usually how I write. Usually I go very much the opposite direction because otherwise it's impossible to start. Um, but since I was on a deadline, I kind of had to just <laughs> get it on paper. Right, right. Yeah, uh, it, that was a really fascinating moment in the episode, the Finrod and Fingolfin discussion, right? You know, um, Finrod kind of pouring cold water on Fingolfin's plans. Um, and especially, like, you can feel the tension there, right? Where, like, Fingolfin, or Finrod kind of staggers into this conversation, and fin Fingolfin is like, I've got something really big to talk to you about. And, and Finrod's like, you want to talk about something big? I mean, holy cow, like, my entire worldview has just been rocked here, and I'm still trying to process this. And, uh, you know, and, and even when he talks about good news, right, and uh, like it's clear, like he and Fingolfin are just on completely different levels there, right? Like, uh, you know, absolutely different wavelengths, not connecting at all. And I, it's, I think it's really, um, it really is a fascinating, um, a fascinating scene, and how like Finrod's perspective is so much wider, um, and it's really, um, and it's really interesting in, um, in the way that it kind of prompts this contextualization, right? I mean, as Nick was saying um, before, that, you know, what Finrod is doing in the conversation that he's having turns out to be infinitely more important than what Fingolfin is doing, even though Fingolfin, you know, is like doing this big, you know, the, the big external thing, what seems like the, a really big deal. Um, 
and uh, you can really feel it there, right? I mean, it's uh, there's like just a touch, almost of like you know Fingolf, like the High King arrives with like the the big news of everything that's going on, and there's just this touch of like. Why are you wasting my time with this inconsequential <laughs> stuff? Like that doesn't matter. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm like learning about you know the fate and destiny of uh, you know the Eldar uh, in Arda and beyond. Um, and okay, like. Do we attack Morgoth next week or not? Like, I, honestly, who cares? Like, that's not what's important here. It's just, it's, it, it's really interesting. I mean, I, the, the effect of that uh, of that scene was really, um, um, uh, uh, was really interesting. Yeah, Ilana has a wonderful point. Um, uh, she says you can totally believe after this why Finrod was willing to let Nargothrond go to go with Baron. Um, and it wasn't just the oath of Bari here. I think um, I hadn't been thinking about that, Alana, but I agree. Uh, imagining the way that we are kind of preparing Finrod's character for that moment, right? Um, the, and not only the moment of his abdication, but also the moment of his sacrifice, right? I mean, um, imagining him in Baron's arms, which of course I was. I loved the the meeting uh, between Finrod and Baron. By the way, that was really. Uh, adorable, um, <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, I thought um, that it 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 really it really th- th- you know again this this whole episode does do a lot as Alana says to set up uh, season six and we're going to have so much to work with uh, with Finrod's character after uh, you know what we've done with him in the season as a whole but I think especially um, especially in this episode um, yeah that makes it sorry go ahead. Real quick to that, and I really have to emphasize how much I relied on both Nick and Marie's and, and pretty much everybody else um, who has done such great work laying the groundwork for season five. Because mm-hmm. once I started to get more information about what had gone before and where things were going in the future, I was very. Uh, both gratified and maybe a little bit shocked at how well things were lining up. So mm-hmm. I cannot claim when I started this, this uh, process that I, you know, had all of these things in mind, but um, they came together very well. And I think it's, it's really because of how well the project has gone in my Good. absence um, yeah. that it was able to get there. So. Agreed. Agreed. Though, though, though I, I, I hope you don't take any, any causal implications there, Brian. Um, uh, it, it didn't start to improve when you left or anything because you left, you know. Uh, we're very glad to have you back. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to make sure that was explicitly clear. Um, but no, I agree. And, uh, and Marie, you know, this is one of the awkward things about the length of season five. Right on the one hand, season five is now 36 sessions long and is going to be over 40 before we're finished. And that kind of seems like maybe in theory more than we should really do in a season. But season five has been really good. So, you know, it's kind of kind of hard. I'm not actually complaining about the length. And <laughs> I agree that if you're going to do something like put the Athrobeth into an episode, you need a lot of groundwork. Yeah. to get the audience ready for this. Mm-hmm. So this is not the first time that we've discussed the concept of Estelle on screen. It's the right. third time, at least. Right. Because in season one, 
Aragorn's name is Estelle, so someone explains the meaning of his name to him at some point. Mm-hmm. And then um, in season four, we had Dinrod and Turgon have a discussion right before their vision from Olmo right. about the difference between Amdir and Estelle. So we've tried to set some groundwork, not just with the characters, but also with preparing the audience for a philosophical debate. <laughs> right, right, right. And so much of the... Um, so much of the uh, kind of not exactly what we've talked about in this season, but I'm so much of the underlying action of season five has been this this tension and this disconnect between elves and humans, right? So it's like it's time we sat down and talked about it, right? I mean, it's th- there's this sense in which it's not just for the sake of Andreth and her own experience with Eichnor, but like the the tensions and misunderstandings and difficulties that people have been having throughout the season are kind of like all bubble up and and over over you know uh, overflow in this episode and we we finally get it kind of all sort of coming together i mean we dealt with the death of beor and the understanding of mortality and everything way back right at the beginning of the season but of course i mean it's and the way and and Brian, I love the way how you you bridge that right with the with the 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 cairn of of Boromir right and the contemplation of the death of the line of Beor like you know here you know uh, he's standing at the grave of Beor's great grandson being like you know wow this is anyway so that is the transition it's just the way it brings everything together is really cool but okay I, was say, I can't take credit for that either because that was already in the outline and then. I just basically took the Athrobeth language and changed very little of it, so right. can't, can't right. really claim credit for that. Well, I mean, in the script discussion, we said it there based on how the Athrobeth starts. Like, that's where we got the idea for that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it is kind of... <laughs> exactly. Really no, I mean... yeah. Yeah. The interesting challenge with this episode is we had so much of what Tolkien wrote to yes. work from. Yes. And that has not been the case on some film <laughs> to this point. No, never. Had, I mean, episode 10 had a, quite a bit with the return of Aradel to Gondolin. But this, I mean, he wrote pages of dialogue. <laughs> In fact, how many pages of dialogue, Brian? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, is it, as I think, the longest continuous dialogue Tolkien ever wrote. I mean, did he ever write another longer dialogue than this? I mean, so yeah, it's. I mean, again, not not that he wrote it for the stage. It's not like he. It's not like it's like a script ready to go. You know, for for a show like this. Um, but it's hard I to. Think, th- I think Faramir's conversation with Frodo and Sam is it's longer. Pretty, right, the one that uh, the one that that he says to Christopher in his letter that like if this. Uh, if this Gondorian guy who just appeared in the story doesn't shut up soon, he's going to have to get bumped to the appendices. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. Faramir yeah, talks for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yep, yep. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but but you're right. I mean, we have never had this embarrassment of riches when it came to direct Tolkien dialogue to work with. Um and it was it was interesting and kind of surreal uh, to read uh, to surreal in the sense that um, the experience so far in film film scripts has always been this sort of um, 
delightful moment because it happened the same thing in the Peter Jackson films, by the way, when like, um, you know, you'd get like movie and dialogue and movie and dialogue. And then all of a sudden this quote from the book would sort of drop. Right. We kind of float through. And, you know, like, uh, you know, th- those of us watching it would you know, suddenly perk up and be like, hey. Right. Um, I mean, I will never forget the experience of watching The Fellowship of the Ring in the theater for the first time and being like, it's the first time I've ever been able to, like, quote along with the movie the first time I've seen it, you know, in the theaters before. Um, and, you know, not the whole film, of course, but there were definitely passages when, like, all of a sudden I knew exactly where they were going. Um and uh, but but those are always like little you know like gems right these little uh, uh, these these wonderful little things that kind of bubble up at times um, and that's always been the film film experience too right when when we get a moment you know like um, I'm thinking of um, season four you know the conversation with uh, uh, with Angrod and um, and and um, uh, Angrod and Finrod and, and Thingol, right at the the you know his uh, passing of his doom and everything, um, you know th- there's there have always been these scenes that we n- always knew we were going to incorporate, right? And there were these, but but again, the Silmarillion, not a whole lot of dialogue, right? On the whole, so you get just these like quotations, right? These like lines that somebody gets, uh, you know, quoted in the text, um, but here. You know the, the 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 surreal experience of having it be almost reversed. Instead of having a text in which, you know, the 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 wonderful Tolkien quotes are like embedded like gems, right? Instead, I could I could I could feel and hear these like whole scenes where we had to cut. You know, <laughs> we had to trim down what Tolkien said, and 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 I was like. Whoa! I've never, I've, ne- I've never had to do that once. You know, to sit there and be like, okay, wait, hang on, I'm trying to remember what was said that got cut out there. You know, um, so yeah, it's 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 just fascinating. Um, uh, that was fascinating. an act of cowardice on my part because uh, <laughs> I got, I kept getting to the Athrobes scenes and I was trying to figure out what goes here, and so initially I was just writing things because it starts off relatively slow and there's not actually that much and it's a pretty good back and forth but -hmm. once they start getting the meat of it i was like i don't know what this scene is or where to cut it off and so it just okay i'm just gonna transcribe the whole thing which took hours by the way it's not a it's not a quick process to transcribe the audience into a script writing program um but it was it was really me just feeling unmoored and not knowing where to go and so I was like, forget it. I'm just going to put it on paper and then write the other scenes around it and then cut later. And at the time, it seemed like a really good idea because, you know, I had just read the opera a couple of times and it seemed like, hey, like maybe 45 minutes, an hour, something like that, tops, if you're reading slow. And so I was like, can't possibly be that long. And then when I was all done and we had 100 pages of <laughs> script, I was like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened. <laughs> uh, Oops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is. Uh, it is. Very, I, I was very interested in your choice. I mean, I, it seems an absolutely inescapable choice to break it up, right? And as you say, like, where do the scenes come? What's you know? How do you? Uh, and I thought that that was um, a really interesting thing. That not only where you made the pauses, right? But then, of course, you've got to like 
fire the conversation back up again, right, to find an excuse or or at least an opportunity for them to uh, renew the conversation, right, and have that make some sense. Um, and then give some kind of visual, like, we can't exactly just have... And now cut back to the room in which they're still sitting and having this conversation, right? There has to be some progress of time and some change of scene and, and context and things like that. And so, yeah... Um, yeah, yeah, we had the challenge of the two things being intercut, being something that was ostensibly a single conversation, and <laughs> right. the other guy travels from travels east across to, the continent, across, <laughs> or west to east across all of Valeria. Yes, it can't be happening at the same time unless it's multiple conversations split up over the yeah. course of a month. So we did that. Yeah. Right. So we didn't exactly. want to go silly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bri- Brianna says, I've blacked out the memory of when I transcribed the whole Silmarillion into script form for this exact same editing writing method years and years ago. <laughs> yeah, I can easily imagine, Bri. I can imagine that. Um, it turns out it's a rookie mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, I'm going to let's talk about the A plot because if we don't, I never will, um, uh, and I don't want to lose it. Uh, yeah, and best to kind of think this through a little bit, and sort of that way we can kind of keep it in mind when we come back to the Athrobath. So, um, uh, so tell me about the things that you found uh, most interesting or challenging in the A plot and in Fingolfin's uh, uh, Fingolfin's. Um, whole trajectory here um his um it's interesting how his um journey it kind of loses steam right as it goes through i mean by the time he gets to mithros he he barely even needs mithros to say no at that point you know it's um it's pretty clear uh that things are not going to be working his way um, but um, one of the things that I wanted to so Marie let's make sure everyone's on the same page right so for reminders for folks who might have missed the previous episode or something remind us about the uh, his vision like what Fingolfin is, has in mind like his dream and, and, and why he's doing this so the, the vision he receives from Aloran is a heads up that time is short right? and the siege is not going to last and Fingolfin needs to act so there is that sense of urgency that he gets from that at the same time there's also words of hope and a reminder that hey the men are here and that changes things so he's not being spurred on by some sense of like hopelessness and despair but rather mm-hmm. he thinks he has hit upon the solution to their problem, which right. is sure, the Noldor might be doomed and maybe, you know, this isn't going to go well for us, but there's these men here and they're not part of the doom, so maybe and that's about as far as he gets he doesn't really have a strategy or a specific thing he's trying to accomplish, but he thinks now's the time, let's just do it right, right and his I thought that his his 
reasoning in as much as he's using reasoning in his attack, right? And his plans that are, you know, because as you say, he doesn't exactly have a plan. Um, uh, but there's enough of a plan that it it holds together, right? It's not hard for other people to poke holes in it, um, but it also makes a certain amount of sense, right? That, uh, okay, like we can't, we're not going to be able to just hold him in leaguer forever. Like something has to give and what better time than now? And um, I mean this, it, yeah, okay. Like I can follow that, especially after his, especially after his vision, after his, after his dream um, with the time being short, right? You know, I mean, there, there was warning in that and um, uh, yeah. Um, did you, what kind of, uh, so let's talk first about Fingolfin's character. Um, what do you see? How do we see this? Because, of course, we're thinking a lot about Fingolfin's character in the, when we discussed the previous episode um, as we were looking at, you know, the trajectory that's going to lead to Fingolfin's death uh, at the end um, of the season. Um, what role do you see? Like, what, what do you think we need to accomplish in the A-plot of this episode, as far as, like, where his character was at the beginning of the episode compared to where his character is going to be at the end and how that moves him in his progression towards where we need him to get to in uh, in episode 13. You see what I mean? Yeah. Um, the main thing that I thought for Fingolfin was that this is not so much of a... I have a plan and this is your role in it because that didn't right. seem appropriate considering how hands-off of a high king King Wolfin has been through mm-hmm. through his entire lordship, right? So um, for me, and earlier versions of this were even even less... Um, they, they were much more about, like, I need information before I can properly develop a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that went away a little bit but it's there's elements of it still there where he's kind of asking people you know what do you think about this and how would you you know what sort of strength could you supply if i was going to do something like this Mm -hmm. um and it just it didn't seem appropriate to have you know fingolfing going around telling people this is what i have in mind and this is what you're going to do and have them tell him no Right, uh, and so in that regard, it's almost a little bit of a of a flaw of his sort of leadership style, which is that was one of the things that came up as we were discussing it, uh, and everyone was catching me up on things that have gone before. Um, mm-hmm. Fingal is not a, a a tyrant at all. Right, he's right. a much more you know hands off kind of guy, um, and so to to that end, I kind of wanted it to seem like it's a little bit his fault that people don't just fall into line because they've never had to fall into line under his kingship in the first place. So um, that is how um, his, his journey starts is Mm -hmm. very much asking people for information and for support. Um, And then over the course of the episode, it's like he gets more and more resistance, right? Because Kiridine is very like, yeah, sure. No problem. I can do that. Sounds great. (laughs) Uh, but then at the very tail end of their conversation, it's like, so what What do you think Fingal might say about this if I were asking him? It's like, oh, well, I don't know about that. I might not right. go so well. Um, yeah, so the, the progression is that, like, 
the obstacles get larger and larger as he as he goes um, further and further. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really become clear to him that maybe this isn't going to work out until Fingrod tells him, like, I think this is the wrong way to go. Um, right. Which is basically how that conversation resolves. Is Fingrod is like, okay, I see what you're thinking, but um, and it's a little it. I think Fingrod comes away from that conversation a little both hurt and confused because Fingrod is kind of cryptic. He doesn't tell him exactly what his vision is or what he's been talking to Andareth about, in part because Andareth has made it really, really clear that some of this information is extremely private right. and we don't just talk about it with anybody. And he, he feels unwilling to just share all of that information. Um, he feels very surprised and caught like in a, in a hard place. Yes. Uh, yes. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of there's a lot of not knowing what to do, which is not great for an episode of television. Like prevarication <laughs> of this kind is, doesn't create compelling TV, right? Um, so uh, that was that was difficult, and I got some right. good advice from uh, the other little project where they were like, he needs to be a little bit more about. He needs to be more sure of what he's trying to do. It can't just right. be that he's going around asking everybody, so what do you think about this? And so that right. uh, really helped right. make things a little more immediate in the in the writing. Yeah, yeah, but I agree. Like as, uh, as far as plot summaries of a TV episode goes, um, a dude who doesn't exactly know what he's doing finds out that his sort of idea is not actually a very good one, is not really a very compelling... <laughs> plot right for a, um but but i hear that so, i mean but nevertheless i i do think in a sense right that is one of the things that we want to accomplish he's not only it's not just that he has and this of course is where you know what we were talking about in the pre about the previous episode with his his whole vision and what he's trying to do with it he's still trying to figure it out right he doesn't really understand what it means he doesn't really know what he's supposed he's like this is his best guess essentially right something is supposed to happen um and this i think is what uh is what if you know if time is short if his own time is short in particular then clearly that suggests he should do something right and that was it was my favorite thing about the way in which I felt that that last episode came together really elegantly um, and the way that it brought together the elf human themes of the season so well um, is that from the beginning, there's been this conflict right throughout the House of Beor plotline and Nargothrond um, with uh, Hador and her people, both with Carinthir and with uh, uh, with uh, uh, Dor- uh, Doriath, um, with Hador even and his people as well. This tension between. No, we need to make our lives count, right? There's urgency. We have to do something and we need to be thinking not, you know, we need to, we, we need to be thinking about the future in ways that are different from how elves think about the future. And we need to think about the present because it's all that we have in a different way. And, uh, you know, we have a different relationship to that. And the way that Fingolfin in the previous episode finds himself in almost a similar place, right? Where he now has to learn from them. Um, if his time is limited, then it's time for him to start thinking less like an elf lord and more like a human, 
um, in some way. Like there are things that he can learn from them, but he doesn't know how to do that. And he doesn't know what it means. And so we have him essentially starting this episode with what is like his best guess of what that looks like, right? What it looks like to act with urgency and to, uh, to be, you know, to, if there's, you know, there is, there is urgency and there is hope. So urgency plus hope equals attack. Okay. You know, like that, that tracks, right? That tracks. And, and, and would I mean, it makes sense that that would make sense to him. Um, and as you showed, I really liked the beginning with Kierden. I thought that Kierden was, uh, uh, was a, was, was a delightful interlocutor for Fingolf and setting this up at the beginning, you know, both the, um, the unhesitating, uh, and complimentary way in which he is, uh, happy to, um, uh, to go along with it. And yet, his complete reserve when it came to actually commenting on the likelihood of success, you know, or, or anything like we're going to attack Angband. All right. That's ambitious. Well, we're, we're here to support you in your crazy plan. Um, will Fingal go along with this? No, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to go on record as not telling you anything about that, but I'm going to suggest that, uh, uh, you have a very, very small chance indeed of convincing him to, you know, so again, the way that you have this, um, again, you don't have people reeling back in shock and being like, you know, you know, Fingolfin, get off the crazy juice, right? Like that's not people's response to him. Um, and again, Kierden sets that up really well, but, um, but yet you can see from the beginning, there's this like discord there. Like it's not, this is not, um, um, probably not actually going to be the fit ending of this. So again, where we move him to at the end is not just demoralized, right? It's not just like, um, cause there, there are several possibilities of where he could be at the end of this, you know, when he's trying to raise support for his big push and failing, right? One would just be like depressed, Right. He's like, I have this vision. And if only people would listen to me and not be so timorous. Right. Then, oh, like we could accomplish something. But here I am, my hands bound because I'm not a tyrant. Right. If I were willing to just command them, maybe they would obey. But I'm I'm not going to do that. And yet they won't go along. And so here I am helpless. Right. That would be one possible outcome for him. And that would be kind of sad. Right. Um, um, and, you know, they're could be he could just be like angry right and uh and feeling like his authority is um uh is being challenged i mean he could i mean we're talking about finrod and nargathron before i mean he could he could come to the end of this episode and symbolically cast his crown onto the floor and walk away like fin like finrod is going to do in season six um but that's not where he is either right um so the way in which this kind of leaves him I mean it leaves him in uncertainty like it's totally unresolved at the end you know for him because we're not there yet like his resolution ultimately is going to be the duel with Morgoth but um, what does come clear by the end of this episode is whatever is the proper interpretation of this vision right whatever is the the um, you know the optimal manifestation of this hope and vision in action, it's apparently not this, right? Um, and so, but he, and he doesn't know what, it, and and that's the, he still is. He's trying to figure that out. So, Brian, as you're suggesting, he's not just going to go around and ask everybody's advice, right? Hey, what do you think? But in a sense, that's what he's getting from people, 
right? You know, the, the feedback that he's getting is pre, is pretty clear evidence. And as you said, especially in that conversation with Finrod and Mythros, um, you know, Mythros, that line from Mythros, you know, uh, what you have is hope, not a plan, right? Um, is, I, I mean, that was um, uh, brutal, but fair, right? I mean, that's, that's uh, exactly what he has, is a hope and not a plan. Um, and, uh, uh, and for him to, you know, basically that, you know, Finrod has already kind of challenged it and um, invited him, essentially, though somewhat cryptically, to kind of rethink this big picture wise, right? Be, re- rethink what he's headed towards, what he's trying to accomplish exactly. Um, and then Mithros saying, from a practical standpoint, this will not work. Like it's, this is, this is a bad, as a plan, this is a bad plan, right? Um, uh, again, puts him in a wonderful place. We're like, okay, now having, with that, armed with that feedback, now I get to go back to the drawing board and figure out because the the urgency remains, right? The urgency remains and the hope remains. And so if not this, then what, right? And um, so ending with that kind of question, I think is really important. And, and that's, that's the one thing that I sort of, um, uh, I don't know how to, I would, I don't know how to do it, but I would almost like that to be even more explicit at the end. You know, the sense that, um, Fingolfin is not just going to kind of hang his head and limp his way back home and be like, nobody liked my idea. Guess we're not going to do it. Right. Um, but instead for him to be like, okay, like I, you know, my determination that something needs to be done and that I have been given some kind of guidance, some kind of impetus to accomplish a real thing here, like that he still believes in that, that he still, his hope is not quenched. Right. Even if he has become convinced that that's not the way, right? You know, this isn't the way it's going to be fulfilled. Um, but to have that um, kind of question asked, more like, if not this, then what, right? Um, it would be interesting to see if there were a way that that could kind of come out even more explicitly at the end, I think. I don't know. So Mithras has put some thought into how would one attack Angband, in fact. Right, right. And that's why we, when we end with him, he's not just telling Fingolfin no to your plan. He tries to explain to him what would be needed to do this correctly. And the idea is Morgoth's entrenched in Angband. He has a giant fortress, well-armed with lots of people in his army. The Noldor have their siege line pretty well entrenched, a pretty well defended position. Whoever attacks first is at the disadvantage because they have to put their armies out in the field without the protection of the fortress. So if you let Morgoth attack first and decimate his army, now you can attack Angband. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the first step is you've got to draw them out. Right. And that's what Fingolfin's plan lacked, was any way to draw Morgoth out of his fortress. And somehow, by the end of episode 13, I think Engolfin is going to come up with a way <laughs> to draw Morgoth out. Right, right. <laughs> and yet, it doesn't look anything like what he thought it was going to look like at the beginning. Yeah, so to take that principle and the way that it's going to end up being applied in a completely 
counterintuitive way, right, from where they're standing right now. Uh, it's, it's exactly what I think is so interesting about the way in which this episode can serve as that kind of bridge, right, to make to make that decision that he makes later on make sense. So if you're, what you're saying is you want neither of us to talk more on screen, I'm fine with that. <laughs> um, but for some reason, the goal up to this point has not been to put more words in people's mouths. So that's the only reason I didn't go in and suggest lots and lots more mitos. Right, right. Oh, well, I know that uh, I know that you are never hard to convince on the more mitos question, Marie. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, I, 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 yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, I don't. Know, I, I needless to say, I'm. Uh, um, generally not a person who is usually thinking um, that I uh, don't want more of things. Uh, So (laughs) I would be happy with more Mithros too. Um, uh, But yeah, sort of uh, making... I thought that his... The tactical discussion from him... I mean, that was where it was... um, It was really interesting how this was like the final blow against Fingolfin's plans, right? And, And it was interesting that it did not begin there. Um, I thought that that was really well done, um, that it begins, not begins, but again, the, the kind of the, the turning point was the conversation with Finrod, where Finrod is throwing cold water on it, but he's not throwing cold water on it tactically, right, or practically. It's like, no, I'm not feeling it, right? Like this, I, whatever message you're getting, I don't think this was it, right? I, I don't think, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, that's kind of what Finrod tells him, right? This is not... Um, there may be hope, but 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 I don't think this is it, right? I think you're barking up the wrong tree here. Um, and then to have Mithros basically spell that out in very practical terms, right? Let me explain to you what exactly is wrong with this tree that you are barking up, right? And exactly why you don't want to bark up this tree. Um, I loved his, like, let's take the best case scenario, right? The best case scenario, and you break through the gates and you, oh wait, did I say best case scenario? I meant worst case scenario, right? Like this is, this just, this will not work. Um, and this is the other thing, right? I mean, you know, Marie, you were talking about fortresses and stuff, but like this is the problem with the fortresses, with all of these fortresses uh, is that we're talking about like Morgoth Fortress is a mountain range for crying out loud. Like you can't besiege it, right? You can't, um, uh, you know, to, it's one thing to say, we're going to break down the gates and we're going to, uh, you know, clean it out. That when it's the size of a mountain range, that just doesn't work. You're setting yourself up for lots and lots of trouble. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, the gates have no more than a symbolic significance when it comes to invasion, right, and thinking about tactical plans. Um, and it is much more likely to lead you into a tactical disaster. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Nick, I agree. Nick says we need to talk about the return of the doll. And I agree. We need to. Re- I loved the doll. Uh, Brian, tell me about the doll. Uh, the doll was a line in the outline. I was familiar with the doll well, I think I just went back and listened to like a bunch of episodes related to the doll. Um, but 
it was something that they, the the outliners had already established that they wanted to see a return to. And then, you know, we had some conversation about it and stuff. But um, for me, um, the fact that the doll was like the, the, I don't know how, I don't recall exactly how complete the symbolism on the doll was. It was just a neat idea that they were, they wanted, like there's something symbolic that can be done here. Um, and as I, as I was writing, I kind of thought to myself that this would be a good symbol for pointing out the, the flaw to foreshadow his conversation, both with uh, Fingrod and with Maedros. Um, because for me, all of the visions of hope in this episode are slightly flawed, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because that was the only thing that made sense to me as far as why doesn't this work? Because I kept, once I had gotten most of the episode on paper, I kept coming back to, we know what the outcome is. If we've read the Silmarillion, we already know what's coming. So what is the problem here? Why doesn't this work? And the only thing that made sense given the cause you know how the the cosmology sort of works was they're seeing parts of the picture but they're not seeing the whole picture so they're making errors in judgment based on their understanding of what is supposed to happen um and that's why you know fingolfing's confusion or you know fact finding mission doesn't completely go away it's because he he's as you pointed out trying to figure out what he is supposed to do um, and what ultimately happens is that nobody gets it right. Um, I think I would point out that Maedros is the most factually correct and the least and the most wrong, right? Mm -hmm. All of his facts are unassailable, but the the argument that he's making is is wrongheaded. Um, and that's kind of how everybody in this episode is. They're just kind of doing the best they can with things that are bigger than them, um, and they and they fail. Um, mm -hmm. So, again, making that into compelling television is kind of cheap. <laughs> I'm not yes. sure, but um, but that's where once I understood that core idea about all of the characters um, and their motivations, it became a lot easier to like tie things together really th well thematically, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. In particular, the Atrabeth, because the Atrabeth is a, is the exact same thing where. Um, and we, we kind of cut the legs out a little bit from under Fingrod in there because he says a lot of very declarative statements in the original text that are we are given to believe are probably correct. Um, and we got rid of some of those. Um, and it turned mostly for time, less for the thematic reasons. But it works a little better because even in that conversation with Andres, he's trying to he's trying to give her hope and, and give her a better vision of how things are supposed to be. But there are things that he gets wrong. Um, mm -hmm. So this is an episode where literally everyone is wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and trying to figure, I mean, um, if there's a single metaphor, right, if there's a line, which I think um, kind of speaks the heart of this episode, which is the heart of this whole season, it's the line about two hands reaching out across you know, in the darkness across the, uh, you know, the, 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 the gulf towards each other. Right. Um, and that's what we're seeing everywhere. That's what we're seeing, you know, whether it's of course, primarily between the elves and humans reaching out towards each other, but even, 
the way that Fingolfin is, you know, like reaching out towards, you know, the Valar and towards, you know, the future. And I mean, everyone is that, that, that seems to me the absolute core, um, the absolute core image uh, of the, yeah. Of a, see, see, that sees, if, if there's one line, if there's season five in one line, that's the line in, in my, in my opinion. Um, As, but to uh, answer yeah. your question, which was about the doll. <laughs> yeah. Um, the doll kind of became a symbol of that realization, or at least a foreshadowing of of the problems. Right, the the doll falls apart. He, as soon as he gets it, it's in his hands for you know a couple of hours, and he's already ruined it. Right, it starts falling apart. Um, the the patches come loose, and the stuffing falls out. And so um, that's what the doll ended up being once I got to the end of the episode and kind of had a, a clear sense of um, where things were going. Yeah. Um, Marie, do you want to remind us about the, the the doll from before? Right. So it's from episode two, which is when uh, Fingolfin first visits Nargothron and meets men for the first time. So Bayor's mm-hmm. getting on in years, and Fingolfin has the realization that, oh, hey, men are mortal. This guy's not just, like, struck by grief or something. He's, he's aging. This is... Right. Oh, <laughs> so Fingolfin <laughs> figures out that men are mortal before Finrod does. Finrod is blinded to all that. He has not yet accepted that his pet will die. Um, right. So the doll was a gift that one of the humans gave to Fingolfin when he arrived in Nargothrond. And after he realizes all this stuff about mortality, because Beor is putting a lot of emphasis on training his successor, and Fingolfin is like, oh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe I should do that. So right. he recognizes that the only way humans are going to accomplish anything is if they pass things on from generation to generation. So before he leaves Nargothrond, he gives the doll to a child, a human child, and like, this is for you, and then leaves. So when the little kid runs up to him at Ladros, of like, here, here's your doll, it's it's implied that that's been passed down in generations. Through this family and so this little child he's meeting is like the little child he met 70 years ago but it's someone totally different who doesn't know him like he has to start over again right so it, it kind of emphasizes the generations of humanity that have been passing and fingolfin's real for initial realization of that coming back to him now of like yeah men are brief <laughs> right they're here and then they're gone <laughs> right <laughs> Right, and there's this irony, right, that the the doll, which Brian, of course, as you point out, is is falling apart, right, as a a doll of that sort would after seventy years, right. Um, uh, nevertheless, like it's it is endured longer, right. I mean, it's it's uh, generations. Like the child that gives him is a, is like what the grandchild, maybe a uh, great grandchild of the child who originally gave him the doll. Um, and so, uh, so the, there, there's also a, there's a a really interesting way in which that doll seems to represent or seems to be connected both to the ephemeral life of men compared to elves, but also it the, its stability. Like it's still there. Like it's the same. It's the, the same doll. Yeah, men are good at passing things on from generation to generation to generation. Yes, here's something. Here's something that's been preserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. elves. Don't are much more likely to get lost. They're losing everything from Valinor, 
as the generation that wasn't born in Valinor comes along. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, and of course I couldn't help but remember, uh, Brian, the, um, when Finrod and Andreth, of course, are going to be talking about memory, right. And, you know, elves, uh, you know, preserving the past. Right. Um, and again, so just that, the, the, the doll as again, a, a kind of a touch point almost for that as well. Right. There's, um, how do the, how do the humans remember the past? Right. By passing it down from one generation to the next. Right. Um, even though over time, that which they pass down from one generation to the next gets, gets kind of decrepit and starts falling apart. Right. Um, and yet they preserved it, yet they have passed it down. Um, and, uh, um, and then, but again, but, and, but Fingolfin, who has received the same doll from a different child 70 years later, he's the same. And, you know, anyway, so th- there are so many interesting ways in which that doll kind of um, invites this sort of intersection of uh, uh, and kind of speaks to and uh, 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 connects with these uh, relationships. So at the end of the episode, the doll is accusing him of his failure. Right. So when it shows up in the tag, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure the way Brian included that is like, yeah, this this is the sign that you didn't do what you set out to do, and here's that little ball to stare back. Doesn't make any effort, you know. We're we're given to understand that years have passed Mm -hmm. since he got back, right? Um, First we see you know Fingrod going up to check out the leaguer, and then he goes back home to Nargothrond, and it's been a season. So when we get to Pinkokin and the tag, the doll is sitting on his desk, still with the hole in it, unstuffed, and you know he's he's not ready. He's not done. He hasn't he hasn't whatever he was inspired to do, he hasn't been able to fulfill yet. And that's that's kind of what that symbol is there for right. to remind right. us of. Right. Well, especially since again going back to the way in which his vision has placed him in the position of learning from the men, right? Following in the footsteps of men. Um, and so, yeah, there's this, I mean, it's one of the other things that I was associating the doll with there at the end, as he's staring at it on his desk. It's almost like he needs the doll to teach him. Like he hasn't yet learned, right? Like a, that, that thing that humans do, right? How, how they get urgency, you know, how they, how they get, how they do what they can do, which of course that's what the hope is, right? The hope is rooted in what humans can accomplish, right? That's what, what, what his hope is rooted in from his vision. Um, and so, so there's still this like, you know, teach me doll. I, I need, I have yet to learn, right. Of, of, of how I can, how I can, how I can be like a human, right. How I can accomplish things like a human can, how I can best prepare for my end in the way, you know, how I can die well, even, you know, like a human would die well. Which, of course, makes me think of Finrod again. Uh, and, uh, you know, he will have a different view of that, right? Um, and yet, you know, uh, importantly parallel. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Nick says, the doll is a good recipient for the question, what then am I supposed to do? Um, yeah, 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 I agree. I agree. Um, well, 
I'm not going to hold back any further. Not that I've been holding back in an exemplary fashion to this point, but uh, the athrobeth itself uh, and the uh, the the discussion. First of all, I I I noticed and liked the fact that I think you softened Andreth a fair bit, especially in the early part of the dialogue. I thought that your Andreth was a little less nasty than Tolkien's Andreth in the debate. She seems angrier to me at the beginning. And especially, and when I, when I, the way that the, that you are making, I mean, you're using many of the same lines, but, um, uh, but in particular, like the contexts, right. And the ways in which there were the kind of circumstances between them. She was more, um, and as, as well, like the, um, the non athrobeth lines that came in as a result of having to put them in a place doing a thing, right? Um, when she addressed him with lines not taken directly from the athrobeth because it was necessary uh, uh, in order for them to have a room that they're sitting in or, a, you know, a countryside that they're walking through or whatever um, it is necessary to start and finish a scene. Um, and so you ended up supplying some extra dialogue that wasn't in that text. And I felt that one of the primary patterns of the, of that was to, um, to make her less bitter. I don't mean she's not bitter. I don't mean that she's not angry, but she was, um, I've always felt in the Atherbeth itself, Finrod is really patient in the first half of the Atherbeth, right? When he doesn't yet really, I mean, he knows the background, like he knows why she's a bit, and it, it's, and that again, that's so wonderful at how Tolkien sets that up. By the end of it, we know full well why he's been so patient at the beginning, right? Um, I mean, I remember reading that for the first time, and I'm like. Why has Finrod put up with this? <laughs> like, why is he putting up with the way she's talking to him? Um, she is being aggressively rude to him. Um, and, like, who does she think she is and why is she? Like, I get it. Like, I can sympathize with her and I can see her point of view. But, dang, lady, like, what is your damage here? And then, of course, we learn what her damage is, right? And we learn that he knew all along what her damage had been. And so, again, so it's, I, I mean, I love the way that that comes out uh, in in the text. Again, I think it's, uh, that's the thing that's amazing to me about the, the amazing thing that Tolkien accomplishes in the Athrobeth is he, I can't remember ever in my life anywhere reading what is essentially a philosophical dialogue which has the kind of emotional power. <laughs> like, I mean, have you ever like been moved to tears at the end of a philosophical dialogue before? I never have. Right. I mean, it's incredible. Maybe. The death of, maybe. maybe the maybe death of what? Socrates. <laughs> of Socrates. Right. Yeah. Maybe, That's maybe. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible, but, um, I like the way that I, I felt like you softened that some, like she was, She's more polite to him, at least, okay. right? You know, um, she seems a little bit more, um, a little bit less quick to just, like, b b blame him, right? I mean, like, she speaks to him in the Athrobeth, it, it always seems to me, as if, like, she's accusing him personally of, like, uh -huh. you know, all of the... Uh, um, 
you know, condescension and misunderstanding that she accuses the elves of, right? Um, and I felt that you softened that appropriately because that felt almost necessary to me. Um, I mean, I was, I was, I was feeling it. I was feeling the way that she seems less angry, um, less just um, uh, lashing out less. Um, uh, I felt than in the text, but again, that seemed appropriate based on the backstory that we've given them in this season. Right. Um, and especially the way that he's been he's been away. She hasn't seen him in a really long time. And all of her reactions or interactions with him have been really positive. Right. Um, uh, and it would seem when these are two characters, well, when she, her character and we know Finrod's character. Right. Most of us coming to the I mean, I think very few people come to the Athrobeth without having read the Silmarillion. So most people know Finrod's character, but don't know. I mean, she's you know, an invented character for this, right? So nobody knows anything about her when they start reading it. Um, and so again, everyone, you know, it, it's like, why is she so angry at Finrod personally, apparently? Um, well, but we have reason for her not to be that way towards him, right? Um, and I think it um, it really set her up, um, made her much more sympathetic uh, uh, as, a, as a character, Um uh, throughout this, we we can certainly hear her bitterness, right, and her sarcasm. But um, uh, um, yeah, and Nick, I agree. Nick was saying that the fact that we have her interacting with other characters also uh, helps to humanize her as well. And Nick, I wasn't thinking about that, but I think you're right. I think it's one of the things that kind of affected it too. Though even there, we can we can we can see the saltiness. Um, first of fr- starting yeah, from the language. First, well, yeah, when she first interacts with Vera here she snaps at him when he comes yeah. to see her, yeah. but he responds as if, ah, oh, that's just her way. And I'm just going to go along with it as a joke. So because he takes it as like a good natured thing, it doesn't feel nearly as stinging as it would if someone just talked to you that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like the, Oh, they're family. This is, this is just how they talk. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and then with her being at her father's grave, like you, you kind of give people a little bit of leeway when they're standing right next to their father's grave. <laughs> right, right. And then when she falls down when they're outside, you know, again, people are embarrassed when they fall down in public. Like, there's always an excuse or a reason for her to be talking the way she is that makes right. the audience a lot more sympathetic to her, at yes. least hopefully. <laughs> right, um, right. While she remains as salty. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 Brian, I loved the toy, the touch about the language, right? How like you know, there's this like formal conversation, and everyone is speaking Cinderin to each other, and then she just cuts in. She's not speaking Cinderin, right? Like I can't be. I am not gonna, you know, speak that. Right, stand on ceremony and speak like elf language to the elf lord, right? Uh, like whatever, elf lord, if you're here talking to humans, you can speak, you know, our language. Uh, and, uh, and that by itself really spoke volumes, right, uh, of her without, even before she said anything. Yeah, Andres' use of propriety is very, very calculated. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, don't, I don't think I intentionally tried to, to dial back her frustration but it didn't seem appropriate for her to just be screaming at people all the time. Right. Always about everything. So a lot of her distancing of, um, of herself from Fingrod is 
her use of propriety, and he comments on that, right? Um, he, he says, you know, you and I are beyond such titles, right? Um, so the it's a it's a little it's a little less raw and it's a little more because you know she's been she's been dealing with this for for decades already anyway or you know at least over a decade so it just it didn't seem it made her seem less clever um to just have her be vociferous in her yes. interaction yes. with Rob. and then and, and i thought that that was a really important thing to remember this is a wise woman of the atani right like she is right. a a valued and often um, consulted advisor to the leaders, and and she's a. Uh, we decided, or I decided. I don't know if that's actually reasonable, but it seemed like you know I kind of made her a a, a folk doctor mm -hmm. type of thing where she she knows things, so she's going to be the one who's going to be able to identify medicines, and that's part of what they do is they go out and get medicines. Um. So. You know, I, I didn't, I wanted her to be a little bit more of like, I wanted her to be more snarky and less raw. Yes. Uh, and I, especially because time has passed. Really a lot of time has passed. Right. Yeah. So it's not like I, this is, you know, she's still smarting the like week after she, you know, got dumped. Right. I mean, this is mm -hmm. decades later. It has affected the whole way that she looks at the world. But yeah, that's been funneled through both her you know she's been processing that she's very smart um and she is wise and she does have her so yeah i mean all of those things do play in and i agree if she were simply just raw just like emotionally raw all the time um it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't fit her and it wouldn't fit the context right i mean yes that it still hurts after all these years and that's clear and that's perfectly appropriate um but she's long since processed this in various ways, and I, I and I, I did like how we, um, how we how we saw that. I mean, it's so challenging this season the way we've integrated humans all along. I mean, just like the human thing, right? And how we have, like, and now in this episode, the character we had in the previous episode has, like. Since the last episode, this character has had several decades of growth, right, <laughs> and and maturation, and their view of the world has changed in various ways. Brace yourself for that, right? I mean, that's a really hard thing to do again and again and again, character by character, as we have gone through already several generations of humans from the beginning of this season. Um, and I thought I thought that that worked really well, and, and so I agree. I, I think that that was just the right choice. That uh, less raw, more um, um, more kind of processed i guess that's a, that's an opposite of raw isn't it um but still there you know still um uh still um yeah yeah it works um and the way that she has i think it's also it speaks well of her right that she has one of the ways in which she has processed this whole thing right it has led her to in some ways, a deeper understanding of, you know, humans, humanity, right? The human situation, fate, death. Um, she has her suffering, her situation has in fact, like helped her to become more wise, right? She has not turned away from her responsibility. She has not ceased to be who she was. Um, 
I, I, you know, there are still unresolved emotional issues there, but, um, but she is working. I mean, the way in which she, from the beginning of their conversation is teaching him, right? Clearly and explicitly teaching him like, no, let me explain to you about what it is like for humans. And there's a wonderful mixture, you know, it's there in the Athrobeth too. Um, But again, the um, and this is just such a rich payoff, isn't it? Of having built Andreth's character over most of the season um, to now have, having built this character, we now get to put the lines of the Athrobeth into her mouth and in the mouth of this character that we've built, they now have this new richness that they don't have um, when they're coming out of the voice of this not nameless, but, you know, unknown to us character uh, in, in the Athrobeth. Right. One possible way of adapting this would have been to take like the key points of the Athrobeth and then just completely rewrite them. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody really wanted to do that. Right. For kind of obvious reasons. Right. I personally and, think it probably would have been the better choice. But again, I was a coward and just did not feel comfortable doing that. Right. But it, we, a lot would have been lost if we didn't use any of Tolkien's words. That would have been a terrible mistake. So, yeah, the balance. But the the potential choice would have been to say, okay considering Andreth is this leader who made her people go to Ladris and she had this relationship like what would she say in this context this cre- this character we've created what what right. would she say and do and right. create something brand new and then kind of like work the Athrobeth around it and instead what we did is take the Athrobeth as it is and be like okay does this still work for the character we created does it lead into this mm-hmm. and like you said maybe mean something slightly different now but can we still like use that for our story so Right. We went with that choice. Right. Yeah, and I, you know, I I like that. I mean, uh, it's hard not to, hard for me not to like that, loving the Athrobeth as much as I do. Um, uh, and I hear you, Brian. I, I don't think I would have had the courage to do it either, you know, to be like, let me, uh, let me rewrite it entirely, right? Let me just, um, uh, but as I said, I thought that you know, I thought that the the cutting that you did uh, was uh, was interesting. I think there there are probably some. Th- I can imagine further revisions of this script that goes more thoroughly. You know, like now in this new context, taking some of the speeches and saying we might want you know she might want to approach that from a slightly different standpoint. Um, there were times when it did feel that the conversation got like too theoretical too quickly, right? Because again, it's lifted from the Athrobeth, which is almost entirely theoretical and without context uh, from the start, right? Um, And so there were some places where it kind of felt like um, it was a little odd for them to jump straight into like, let's think about death in the abstract, shall we? Um, uh, That didn't feel like organic to how the conversation would probably have developed in the kind of, with the characters that we have and in the contexts that we gave them uh, in this, in this episode, but. One of the. Defense, he best. did try to do that. And then we cut everything out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Fine, the as is, but we got rid of all of those because we had no room. Um, one yeah. of the best ideas that's come out after the completion of this draft has been 
um, because you know I'm not familiar with most of the rest of the material from season five is maybe moving some of the initial conversations to other episodes um, mm -hmm. where they're relevant so that when we do get to the author of this, we can focus a little bit more closely and give a little bit more space to some of those abstract ideas to come out. Um, and that's, I think, one of the ideas that I like the best, but that will require, like, I don't know where we might move those episodes to, if those episodes are written yet. So if they aren't written, like, would I have to write that so that I could have a good, you know, tent pole right. to be relying on? So it's, as with everything in this project, things lead to more things. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No yeah, understanding. I mean, you'll just have to write some more episodes. That's it. That's it. Yep. But I do agree. Nick was saying it does work surprisingly well. And I agree. It did work surprisingly well. I thought that, you know, um, those, uh, you know, what I was just saying are sort of quibbles. But I, I think that it, um, um, it was it was really interesting. And especially the kind of. I loved it in particular, like. I think you. I think we, we. You did a really good job of conveying Finrod's mind being blown, right? Um, you know, I love in Tolkien's original text the like effusiveness, right, with which Finrod is like, "Oh, <laughs> this is unbelievable." Um, uh, you know, he is uh, he is just charmingly, disarmingly. Um, frank about it. i mean he 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 does not stand on dignity at all right uh you know the kind of dignity that very uh you know well-informed and highly educated people often do where they don't like to admit that they never thought of something or that they you know are, are that's an idea is completely new to them right um and Finrod has none of that, right? You know, he's just like, yes, I did always think, like, you know, when, even when she's being angry and bitter and, and acerbic with it, right? You guys never even thought of this. And he's like, you are right. I, we never even thought of this, <laughs> right? Uh, anyway, so um, I, I thought that that stuff came across really well. Like Finrod's mind getting blown and like, you know, him emerging from these conversations. And this is what I thought the way that you chose to use that as it really was that primarily, right. Um, that you were kind of using as a lever for continuing the conversation, right. Cause it's, it's always Finrod who's coming back and being like, can we talk a little bit more? <laughs> right. I really, I really want to get, I've been thinking about this and I really want to keep pursuing these ideas. Um, and because you do get the impression from the beginning that Andreth is like, would be fine not talking about it more. I mean, she's not the one who's pursuing the conversation. He's pursuing her uh, to converse this. And so, um, and I will say, Brian, I think that the way that that came out, the way that you managed, I thought it was very effective. Because again, the thing that's so gorgeous about the Athrobeth is how it comes around from being this philosophical and abstract discussion. And you come to see by the end that although Finrod has been very interested in this as an abstract discussion and it has, you know, changed his worldview in lots of ways. Yet we see in the end him coming back to it is because I care for you as a person and I know how you are suffering and why you are suffering that I was have been having this conversation in the first place. Um, I love the way that you did that, too. I mean, his um, uh, I thought that you you performed that within the episode really, really well. Um, uh, because he gets so excited. Right. And he even the way that it even not even just spills over into, but in a sense almost dominates his conversation with Fingolfin, right? Um, 
I mean, yes, he's partly saying, no, I don't think you're interpreting this right. I don't think this is the way that's supposed to be. But he's also more than half saying, like, dude, I can't think about this right now. Like, I've got bigger, more exciting things to think about um, than some little, like, military initiative against Morgoth. Like, whatever. Um, um, So, I mean, so again, and so you can see that's plenty of reason, right? He has plenty of motivation to keep going back to her and saying, can can we keep working this out? Right. I I really, for me, I really want to think through this more. Um, But then, of course, especially in that final walk that they have together, um, the the way that he finally brings it back around as he's leaving to... um, uh, to her and to Ignor explicitly, um, without again casting any doubt onto the sincerity of it. He clearly wasn't just like manipulating her all along or anything. It was all genuine. And yet, we now see this like additional, um, uh, you know, personal and emotional motivation. I just I thought that that mapped really really well. Um, and that was actually the place where I felt the the breaks, which seemed inevitable. Like, again, we can't just have this be one long conversation around a campfire between the two of them. It was where, where I thought that that worked really well, like really organically, essentially, um, that, uh, to come back for that last conversation, which changes in a sense, the content reinforms the context of all of the previous conversations. Um, I think is, uh, is really neat. That was a, late addition to the script where like uh, both Marie and Nick will remember um, when I was maybe 60% done um, I actually didn't have everything separated out properly I was like uh, I got this far in the afterbirth and then here is the rest of it (laughs) where the parts go Um, but when I did finally decide I when we did finally sit down and start looking very carefully about where to break things up, it, it kind of just felt appropriate to, these are the epiphanous moments that he's having with these big ideas that he, you know, he says in the text and then just keeps talking. He's like, wow, that's amazing. I, I, this is a huge idea. I don't know what to do with this. And then he just keeps talking anyway mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because of the nature of the dialogue that they have. So instead what I did was, okay, so he's been hit with this huge idea. She asks him a question or she tells him something that's like, mind-blowing this is a good time to say okay let's actually have him not know what where to go next and give him some space to think about the next thing that he needs to say um and i was very very pleased that that worked out so well because i did not see it at the beginning at all like i was like i said the latter half i would say of the author but i didn't know how to break it up at all um and we were looking at this like this section is like 12 pages and this section is like five or six pages like right. this isn't gonna work so um it was it was pretty fortunate um how things shook out in the end because it, it does i think feel really natural where the conversation stops um either because you know um he said something that upset her or she said something that blew his mind um because I was not at all clear on that at the beginning about how, how it was going to get done. Because it says pretty clearly in the outline where things are supposed to go and what parts of the conversation they're supposed to right. be having. But when you actually look at those parts of the conversation, like they span two or three pages. Right. And just, right. So part of this, am <laughs> supposed to cut it at? Um, it, it worked out a lot better than I could have coached. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
One thing that I would also add on the subject of, uh, you know, Brian kind of picking up on what you were saying about um, wanting to set some of these things up elsewhere, maybe perhaps even more. Um, the old hope. The old hope. Now, when um, we get to the old hope in the Athrobeth itself, um, we um, it kind of comes out of nowhere, right? That there's this like subset of wise people who ha- share this old hope that Andreth is kind of distancing herself from and not sure that she, you know, she's certainly not signing up, right? Um, and in the Athrobeth, again, when that comes up, it's like oh, okay, I guess there are people somewhere who think that. We don't know anything about them or where they could be or who they could be or how that happened, right? Um, but that's okay. In the Athrobeth, it's just a, you know. But, but I was feeling it when I was reading the episode. I'm like, mm, our viewers might think that too and we don't have that. We don't have any excuse for that, right? Like, who, where, how. Um, what we've shown is that Andreth is, I mean, she is the, like, repository of tradition and wisdom, right? Um, like, what other faction is there? Where would they be? Who would they be? Other people in the, in the House of Beor? Like, is there, like, another school of wise persons who have gotten, like, a different strain of lore than she got or differ from her in there like how does that work who are the people of the old hope you know the implication in the Athrobeth is that this comes from the house of Hador mm-hmm. and that she's learned of this from them and that's why she's not one of them um in the, the original story of course Adonel herself is of the house of Hador the house and marries with house of Bayor and Estelad which is a part that we've obviously changed in our adaptation However, right. we have had Andreth meet directly with the House of Hadar on multiple occasions. So the suggestion that wise people of the House of Hadar were, would have exchanged lore with her over the years would fit perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, when we were taking the red pen to everything, I made sure we crossed out all references to the House of Hadar or to things that she heard from Adonel because... Yeah, we've changed. The, yeah, we've Let me tell you about these other that. people. It's like, no, no, no. Let's yes. focus on what Andreth has to say. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't try to find a place to do something with the House of Hador with this old hope. Yeah, I mean, because I guess I guess there are kind of there were two things that it made me think of. One was one was that like, is there anything we could do to set this up a little bit more? Even just like minor things that we could do to set this up. Um, uh, But then the other thing that I couldn't help but think is where are we going to go with this? I mean, is it, is it, this is it? We're never getting any reference to these people. Like if there exist these people that, I mean, Finrod thinks this is a huge deal, right? I mean, the existence of this old hope clearly blows his mind. And what is clear in the Athrobeth text, and I thought still pretty clear in the episode was she's like, um, plus minus on the old hope. Finrod is not plus minus on the old hope, right? Finrod is like, this is huge, 
right? Finrod is very, very interested in the Old Hope. And so, again, coming as it does in Tolkien's writings, right? Floating into the Athrobeth, which itself floats into the midst of the Silmarillion tradition that he, you know, was considering completely overhauling and totally rewriting in a completely different way and never did. Um, You know, whatever, like that works. But I feel like we kind of can't just drop this. You know, it's got to have a future, I think. And I will say... My immediate thought, I could imagine it having a, uh, I could imagine this being an interesting setup for a Numenorean uh, plot line down the road. Um, and possibly something more proximate, but I'm not quite sure what or how. This, that's a, we will have to probably f- talk about that maybe in season six. Um, sort of the groundwork that we lay for season six or seven or wherever we decide to put it. But this was one of the, this was a, uh, one of the latest and most contentious points because of course the old hope is overtly Christian in yes. its nature. Yes. And uh, Marie was very, very adamant that that was not appropriate or acceptable for this, uh, for this project, which I have mixed feelings about. Um, but our solution in this episode was amb- ambiguity. We essentially cut the, the conversation off earlier by saying, having them say, ask questions of each other, and then and then the answer is I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you know, in the in the actual text, they go much deeper into you know explaining how Edu is without and he must enter in and all of that. We cut all of that because Maria was like, "This is we, this cannot get in here because it's way too Christian." The incarnation um, stuff. I, I I did notice that the incarnation was missing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And so that is a question that we will have to grapple with if we do decide to explore the notions of the old hope. Um, because one of the things that I didn't want, um, Marie made a couple of statements about um, anything messianic should be very specifically referential to Eadendil. And that's fine, but that's not what they're discussing in the author. They're talking about the the end of Arda right. and what the, what will happen after the end of Arda. So bringing up Eärendil doesn't really is is not right. part of the conversation. You know, in this That's context, uh, yeah, Eärendil is nothing but a like distant foreshadowing of the thing right. that they're talking about. Right. I mean, exactly. he is. Uh, um, so, yeah, he is a type, not the end. Though we're certain, you're certainly right. I mean especially in the Book of Lost Tales. Good grief. Like the Messianic... I mean, it's the Messianic emphasis on Ar- and Arendel is uh, uh, enormous. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's no question that he's spoken of in Messianic terms, especially way earlier. But, um, um, but yeah, it, but, but Brian, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's not... He's not... Um, his relevance to this stuff is, like, tangential at best, like symbolic at best. Right, um, a place where you might get a foretasting, you know, where like if Finrod were watching it and thinking about this, he might say, "This is an image of that thing." You know, this is uh, this 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 kind of smells like that thing, but it's this is this is not it. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, but with the part where we're not going to tell a story where Eru becomes incarnate in Arda. Um, we, it's really bad to set that up. So that was Agreed. my main. Yeah, yeah. That was my no. main reason to 
Um, no, you're right. However, we can't, we can't, we don't want to, we don't want to lay that out there. Um, uh, uh-huh. Because yes, that's, that is a promise we are not going to fulfill. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so I was hoping that by keeping it a little bit ambiguous, it might match some of the Dagger Daggeroth stuff where Turin's going to come back and fight Morgoth. Um, well, and that stuff that is, be... is, is kind of implied and connected even in Fingolfin's vision, right? Like the whole, you know, humans being humans involved in the life. downfall of Morgoth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I, um, I don't know how that fixes Arda necessarily. Right. And neither do Finrod or Andrus. But right. Right. The, the, but the turn piece is in the right direction, I guess, with fitting it, it both Middle-earth and this hope. It is. And and I agree. When, when I say I feel and like... Turn is mean... the house of Hodor. So. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Right. No, and when I say I felt like we need to do more with the old hope, I, it's not that I think we needed to talk more about the incarnation. Because, Marie, I do agree with you. Like, it it sounds like a promissory note that we're not going to cash in. We have no intention of cashing in, right? And we don't... It's a false, it's a false lead, essentially. Um, especially if brought in in as, like, climactic a way as it is brought in in the Athrobeth, right? Um, uh so I, don't I agree. Want to be wrong, I don't mm-hmm. want her to say these things, and then Finra will be like, "Oh wow, that's really cool," and then we do nothing with it forever. And it's like, yeah, Andra's hope was a false hope, and right. therefore, right. there is no Estelle. Like that would be the absolute worst <laughs> message to take away. You're right. <laughs> You're right. That would be that would be exactly the opposite of any goal we should have. Um, right. Um, I mean, what I think would be really interesting down the road. I mean, I, Brian, even just thinking about Arendil exactly in the way that you're talking about him, right? Um, if we can... What we do see in Tolkien, and we see it again and again, um, is the the word that I wasn't saying, I don't know if you said it, or were, but I know you were thinking it too, Brian, was type, right? That Arendil is a type of Christ, just as Gandalf is in fact a type of Christ, even she's not. Christ and and everything. Um, I spent so many years explaining that Gandalf is not Jesus and that Frodo is not Jesus. That sometimes one can go too far and you know be like, "Wait, no, no, no!" But he is in fact a type of Jesus. Like that that that's true. Uh, just don't make the equal sign, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, but not only that, just the overall typological structure, the way that Tolkien is always doing that. Like we get the rep. Like you can you can begin to hear the motifs in the music, right? As you read through Tolkien and and you see the parallels, right? You see, you know, like when you first notice the parallel between Finrod rescuing Mithros and Baron rescuing Luthien, or Luthien rescuing Baron and Sam rescuing Frodo, right? When you first begin to see those patterns and, uh, you know, kind of coming through and you feel that whole typological structure, right? You know, where this is you know, the movement of the music that is being embodied, you know, in different places and at different times and in different ways. This is the motif, that motif coming back again in the great music. Um, um, even if, you know, there's no, like, ultimate end, right? We don't, we don't get that. Like, so, no, no, no we're not going to get the incarnation, right? We're not going to get to Bethlehem in film film, but we will get to Eärendil, right? And we will get... Um, 
uh, to the children of Hurin, and we will get to Baron and Luthien, and we will get to Frodo and Sam, and we will get to Gandalf, right? Um, and all, you know, and all of these, you know, that, so there is this movement. So if there were, I, 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 this is a question, of course, for the distant future, obviously, but it would be interesting to be thinking about those kinds of types, right, and the way and those kinds of connections together. But when originally I was saying about the old hope um, that I feel like we kind of need to, if we're going to bring it up, we kind of need to pay it off in some way. Um, I, I don't mean the idea. I mean, again, like, I don't mean we need to talk more about the incarnation. What I mean is if we say there are these people who believe in the old hope, like, don't we kind of, doesn't that kind of obligate us to show them like, or something? Like, you know, give some kind of context. Uh, is there a, so he, we don't have to, we don't have to like go into it. Right. We don't have to be like, you know, religious cults of the Atani. Right. We don't need to have an episode on that or something. Right. We don't we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But if we had something right, because we could play such a long game with this. Right. Um, What if there were something, a symbol or something like a visual symbol that was like the symbol of the people of the old hope. And then it becomes the symbol of the faithful of Numenor as the furthest is headed. That is the general kind of thing. But it could also do other things, right? It could also show up in Hared, right? Um, uh, differently, right? Um, there could be other... And, and it would be a way to pay it off in other ways, right? Like, we wouldn't have to involve plots that alluded to or dealt with the ideas of the old hope or even of the, you know, this kind of um, cultural or phil- or philosophical or religious movement. We could just a- occasionally show somebody, you know, who bore that symbol, right? To just as a reminder, like, yeah, this is a thing. And it's still a thing, right? It's still kind of out there. Um, I-, I went to Numenor because, of course, Numenor is really going to be the next time after this. Like, as soon as the Dagor Bragalak happens, we're done spending time around campfires philosophizing with humans for quite a long time to come. They don't have time anymore after this, right? They're too busy running from orcs for the rest of the whole history of the first age. Um, So the next time we're going to get people sitting around sipping tea and thinking about metaphysical issues will be Numenor, essentially, right? Um, So, and and of course, especially thinking to the reference, the Numenorian references specifically that Tolkien makes in context about how the Athrobeth was preserved, right? Um, So it would make sense that they would, in collecting the lore of the Edine of old, um, that, you know, this would be something that would come in for study and there would be, um, I would totally expect that there would be, you know, um, Numenorians who you know, believed in the old. Anyway, so it seems to me that that would be the logical place to bring it back in any kind of a significant way. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I just, I feel like it's, it seems like a thread that we could do a lot with. That would be really interesting, especially as I can't help but think, and Nick, I think you were thinking along similar, um, along similar lines, basically. Um, the guy, when you were talking about the the Church of Morgoth, Nick, uh, earlier before, um, the, uh, our Herod frame already has me thinking about right, like um, the how the traditions and religions of the ancient days 
have their, you know, continued uh, existence and what they grow and change into over time and everything. And so, so it seems a shame to not take up the, uh, the invitation, right. To have this thing, right. Um, which who knows exactly what that's going to be and where it's going to go. I wouldn't Marie want to just simply, I know where it's I, going to go in this episode. Yeah. In the frame that we're not talking about until next time. Yeah. <laughs> the older brother has a dagger that is going to be used in the assassination of the queen to pin it on him, of course. That dagger could be decorated. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a signature item, the way Boromir has his horn, right? Yep, yep, yep. It could be decorated with whatever the symbol is. And with her talking about the old hope, if we throw in what the symbol of the people who follow the old hope is, yes. and then see on his dagger. Yeah. Yeah. Even like whatever it is, um, uh, Nick was thinking about something like a sun disc motif or something like that. Um, yeah, something like that. I, I, whatever it is, it is, if all we'd have to do is give her one line, right? Or a fragment of a line where she says like the people of the old hope and then calls them something like, you know, like the people of the sun or of the whatever symbol we decide to give them. Right. Um, just it's like she explicitly connects them with this sim- with this visual symbol. And then Marie, yeah, that visual symbol shows up uh, on the dagger in the frame. Um, yeah. No, there are all kinds of ways we get it. Just it seems like too rich a possibility to not pay off. And um, and I find it too interesting a question Um and, and moreover, I would say exactly the kind of question that Tolkien himself was so interested in. Um, I feel like it's the kind of question Tolkien himself would have been asking had he done the massive rewrite of the Silmarillion material that he envisioned doing. He totally would have wanted to say, OK, granted that there were people who believed in this old hope back then what would have happened, right? Um, what would that have come to look like? With, you know, like in, you know, the Bay of Balar, in uh, Numenor, right? In, uh, uh, in Farnost, right? Like, um, what would the continued life of that tradition have been? The fact that he only invented that tradition way after the fact, right? When all the rest of that stuff was written would not have daunted him, right? That's exactly how he would have wanted to think that through. So I feel like... We owe the it to Tolkien. and refer to the sun and the moon, so they're children yeah. of light. I mean... Exactly, you can, exactly. You can make this um, work. We absolutely can make this work, and we think about the... Yeah, there's... there's. I feel like we... Um, we this is uh, this is what this is what Tolkien would have done, right? It's, we're honor bound, I feel, to uh, think this through. Uh, so I don't want to just leave it, even though it's 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 weird and awkward in lots of ways. And I don't think we should make it dominant. Right? I don't think we need to, you know, suddenly have like the uh, you know a Church of the Old Hope in every town square, you know, of the Adine for the rest of you know for the rest of time. Like I'm not. Um, uh, that's yeah, I, I don't think so. But but still, like there would be something, right? It would be interesting. Um, you know, um, Corey, looking looking way down the road, yeah, it seems like this would be the kind of thing that uh, Faramir would uh, bring up in his long monologue. It sure does, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And Nick just said, uh, if we do connect it with the sun, he said it it completely transforms that scene when Faramir and his men look off to the west. Right uh, before dinner, 
right, in their in their like prayer before meal moment, right? One of the few overt moments of religious observance in all of Tolkien's literature, right? Um, uh, that uh, or even at least quasi-religious observance, right, by Faramir and his men in that moment. Yeah, I agree, Nick. It's that's pretty cool, isn't it? Um, not to mention Maria, as you said, like the name of Anarian, right? Um, uh, uh, and Minas Anor, for the matter of that, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I think that's. Uh, I could get into it. I think. Uh, I think. I think that that could. Uh, that could, and especially, of course, when we think about the connection between humans and the sun in the first place. You know, them being called the children of the sun, and and you know, their awakening with the sun. Um, yep. Um, it is beginning to feel inevitable, but it's also beginning to get late. So I should probably stop. Uh, <laughs> uh, we should probably we should probably stop. But um, thank you. This was awesome. Uh, so much fun to think about. Uh, Brian, you did a wonderful job. I was really. Um, I was. I was actually, and I can't like. It's partly, of course, like you know, on the you know, here your job of like making me weep at the end of the script was easy because like every time I read that line in the Athrobeth, I weep, right? That await us there, my brother and me. Oh my goodness. Like that line just gets to me. So (laughs) I know, like I can't even read it. Like I can't even read it. Um, Oh man. Um, So yeah, like uh, all you had to do was not cut that line and I was going to be crying at the end of the episode. But, um, but no, but I thought it just, that whole, the way that, um, that that whole scene came together, that final scene between the two of them was so powerful. Um, and I, I just love this. So anyways, thank you for the wonderful work that you did. Um, that was, um, uh, and, uh, and, and I also say thank you for your, um, you know, you were you were accusing yourself of cowardice earlier on, but I think it was it was quite bold uh, of you to not only jump back into the project the way that you have after a long hiatus, but to jump in there to be like, yeah, I'll I'll do the let's rewrite the Athrobeth <laughs> episode <laughs> was a was a, a pretty game way to jump back in. I have to say, it was very much a, a Herculean effort uh, and a group effort from mm-hmm. a lot of people doing a lot of good work and being, you know, I definitely did not get all my own, episode, um, but all of the inclusions that I took from other people, uh, I think really strengthened the episode overall. So uh, it yeah. was fun work and it was rewarding work and it was group work hundred yeah. percent of the way. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. So next session uh, will be on September 9th. Um, that's 2021 for those of you who are listening asynchronously. Um, and um, uh, session number 38. So we're going to be talking about the frame. We've been neglecting the frame, which is fine because I think this will be nice to have a whole frame episode to talk to work it all out. We've talked about the concepts of it here and there. We've talked about a few of the scenes and ideas from it, but we're going to sit down with the entire frame story um, and look at how it fits in with the stuff that we've done. And of course, we know what comes next. Um, uh, namely, the Dagor Bragalak is what's coming next. So uh, the the um, and I loved the uh, um, the fire in the background on the horizon at the end of the episode. That was uh, uh, that was really cool, especially the way that it kind of connected with uh, um, Andreth's sitting there. Right, that that uh, <clears throat> we get the fire uh, in the distance behind Andreth as she sits, you know, in her cottage. I thought that was so cool. But anyway, um, 
Okay, so uh, we're gonna look at uh, we're gonna look at the frame next time. Uh, looking forward to that. So that'll be two weeks from uh, from tonight, um, and then after that, Marie will be jumping straight into the last two episodes, right? Correct. We do episode twelve after that. Right, so. episode twelve, and then we'll see where Phil is. If we, yeah, on, on into the on into the um, the big battle. So there we go. All right, cool. Um, uh, oh, cool. Um, Brianna says uh, she might be doing a Silmarillion daily drawing challenge uh, through September uh, that others are welcome to join in along. Very cool. She's going to make a forum post about that. That would be awesome. What a wonderful way uh, to, to. There are so many things I would love to see. Uh, I would love to see. Um, drawings of uh from this season and from recent seasons as well so uh very cool stuff not to mention future seasons karkaroth for instance but anyway um uh okay uh so thanks for that thanks for joining us and uh we'll look forward to the to uh harad and then the big battle after that thanks everybody for joining us and i will say as always thanks for listening and godspeed